let them eat cake. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. How's it going, David? Pretty good, Neil. Pretty good. We both have our first shot of the COVID-19 vaccine, so that is a great development here. Very happy to be able to get those first shots and uh, hope everyone else can get theirs whenever it's available to them, wherever they happen to be. David, how'd yours go? Really smooth, no major side effects, nothing. I'm super grateful. Same for me, no major side effects at all, just a little pain in that arm, but uh, nothing unexpected and nothing you couldn't handle at all much much better than getting COVID-19 so quite happy to have that first vaccine. David are you ready to tell us a history story? I could tell you a story Neil. Then I'll ask oh brother when art thou? Neil it's the 28th of May 1918 and Maverick independent MP and founder of both the Pemberton Billion Aircraft Company And the Vigilante magazine, Noel Pemberton Billing, is arriving at court, ready to defend himself against charges of libel and obscenity relating to his magazine's sensational and deeply homophobic article, The Cult of the Clitoris. All right, we're off to a roaring start here, David. Um, The Cult of the Clitoris. I don't even think I want to know what this could be about, but I I guess I'll ask, what is this article about? So this article, like most of the articles in the Vigilante magazine, is somewhat difficult to interpret, not in that it's not clear what it means, but in that the author always attempts to hide, I guess we could say, precisely what he's trying to say, since, of course, they knew that they were running dangerously close to the libel laws. But the essential implications of the series of articles of which the cult of the clitoris is only one is that German spies in Britain are blackmailing prominent homosexuals in various elements of British society in order to win the war. Right. So it's 1918, David. So this is World War One we're talking about. And this is an interesting implication here that German spies are blackmailing British homosexuals. Why is this the target of this magazine, David? Why are they so concerned about publishing this? So... Well, it helps to start with Noel Pemberton Billing himself. Pemberton Billing is an interesting guy. He started several magazines pre-World War I in his efforts to create an effective business. One of his major interests was in aircrafts, aircraft design. He started a magazine called The Aircraft. He started an aircraft company. It didn't do very well because he was a terrible aircraft designer. Most of his early planes couldn't fly. But along with that set of interests was his interest in right-wing politics. But he was always extreme, always outside of any of the major parties. He wasn't a part of the British Conservative Party or the establishment. He was an outside right-wing agitator. And it really took until the First World War for any of the projects that he was pursuing to take off. In a literal sense, for his aircraft company, their first 
successfully flying aircraft was related to the extra funding they got with the start of the war. But then he gave up on the whole aircraft business after his questionable idea to attempt to beat the triplane by going up one and building the quadruplane turned out to be a flop that barely functioned at all. So he sold off that business, which then became the Supermarine Aircraft Company, by the way, very successful British aircraft company, but that's not really relevant to our story today. So it became successful after he sold it. And more critically, after he stopped trying to be the one to design their planes. Once they hired professional aircraft designers, everything went a lot better. So let that be a lesson for all you airplane wannabe magnets out there who are thinking they can design their own planes. Hire someone to design the plane and you run the business. So after he left that behind, he moved into politics again with a right-wing rabble-rousing element, but he kept the focus on airplanes. And in 1916, that came together in an unexpected way because German Air Force began their Zeppelin bombing campaign of London, which of course was terrifying to the people of London. It's the first real strategic bombing campaign in history. And even though by modern standards, it was very ineffective with very few people dead, still to the people of London, these bombs falling down around their ears, it's terrifying. They were looking for somebody who was ready to strike back at Germany and who knew how to defend them against this attack. And Pemberton Billing, with his history in politics and in aerospace, was able to present himself to at least some voters in London as the man ready to do that. And that combination got him into Parliament as an independent MP, despite the fact that both major parties were very much opposed to his candidacy. So he starts off making airplanes. That doesn't go so well. It goes better after he gets out of that. Then he's doing this rabble-rousing, this publishing, and eventually becomes a member of Parliament, David. So by now we're into World War I. As you mentioned, he gets elected because of the threat of German bombing. So give us a sense of what he's doing in Parliament and what the times are like in Britain during World War I. So in Parliament, Pemberton Billing is really out to make his mark. He's an independent. He's not a part of either of the party establishments, which means he doesn't have a hope of getting, say, a cabinet post, which means that he's very dependent on trying to get media attention to pursue his various agendas. Initially, he really focuses on air defense, air defense of London especially. He accuses the British air defenses, there's not one Royal Air Force yet, but the Navy and the Army Air Forces that are trying to defend London, of ignoring low-income parts of London, which is not true, but of course, politically, it resonates with people who live in those neighborhoods and feel afraid and left behind. And he demands various changes to uh, air defense setup, and he uses that to get into the papers. And then he starts pushing this narrative that German spy organizations are undermining the British war effort. The reason why things are going wrong is because the British army at the front is being betrayed by politicians in London who are working with German spies. And Britain, in the middle part of World War I, 
is very much ready to hear that in a way that we sort of forget sometimes today how grim it must have been when literally millions of young men were dying in incredibly short periods of time when a single battle could kill hundreds of thousands of young British men and frequently have nothing really obvious to show for it. No dramatic movements. The front lines are very static with the trenches and machine guns and the way that the German army is weakening. We can see as historians how these battles are affecting the course of the campaign, but that's not being publicly admitted by the German army at the time. So back home in Britain, it frequently looks like millions of young men are dying for nothing and that they should be able to. Britain and France and Russia are all against Germany, which is a smaller country or can seem that way. So it's a relatively young country compared to other European countries at the time. So there's a wellspring of anger available, essentially, to an unscrupulous politician in Britain in the middle of World War I. And Pemberton Billion really sets himself up as the man expressing that. And then, of course, he creates this magazine, The Vigilante, and he starts selling that, selling his magazine, which contains all of these dramatic articles about German spy organizations in the UK and the way they're being supported by pretty much everybody that the British right-wing at the time doesn't like. He blames politicians, especially liberal politicians, but also conservative elites. He blames the aristocrats, but he also blames other groups. He blames unions, labor unions. He blames the Jews. He blames homosexuals. All these groups, he claims, are secretly working against the British army in the field, reaching its full potential and winning the war quickly and without all of these terrible casualties. All right, David, so Pemberton Billing is on to something that at least there is this feeling out there that the war is perhaps not going the way you would hope. Young men are dying by the thousands, by the millions, and somebody's got to be to blame, and he has the answers here. He has groups that you can blame. And this seems like the sort of thing we've seen throughout history, David, with victimized groups being blamed. But just to clarify, with the benefit of hindsight that we have as historians, is he on to anything? Are there German spy networks operating in Britain? Well, the answer is essentially no. By the middle of World War I, by the time Pemberton Billin has gotten himself a real platform for this kind of nonsense, the major spy networks in the UK have already been rolled up in 1914 and 1915 by MI5 and the London Metropolitan. The British counter-spy organization were very effective in both world wars, and Pemberton Billings claim that there are the massive German spy networks operating with the support of all kinds of senior British officials. This is just paranoid nonsense, but it's the kind of paranoia that appeals to a certain group of people who have other problems and are looking for a scapegoat. Okay, David, so it's just classic scapegoating here. And you've mentioned he publishes quite a series of these articles. What's the reaction like from people? We know there are some people who are ready to grab onto this type of provocation. 
But what's the general reaction like in London and Britain? So in some ways, that's a hard question to answer because of the war. The British government is trying to, I don't want to say suppress dissent, but honestly, they're trying to suppress dissent. They want to see a strong united country supporting the war effort and too much discussion, too much attention being paid to other more divisive topics is not popular with the British government or their propaganda arm. So in many ways, the reaction to Pemberton Billings' growing magazine and its wild and libelous articles is very muted as read by a historian because it's not getting published in the papers. So you really can only track a few diaries which can tell us what a few people thought about it, but it's hard to give a proper what the general tenor of the response was. That being said, certainly many people, probably most people who heard about these things, most people probably never heard of it. It's one magazine. And even the people who heard about this kind of thing, most of them, like most people at any time, were sensible, knew that this was paranoid and unlikely, and just sort of tried to ignore it and go about their business. With the major and important exception, of course, of Maud Allen. All right, David, the natural question, who is Maud Allen? So Maud Allen is a Canadian, by the way, born in Toronto. She's a dancer. By 1918, she's a very famous dancer, and she's appearing in 1918 in a private performance, which is important because private performances, unlike public theaters, are not subject to state censorship whereas public live theater in London in 1918 was actually under a censorship and had to meet certain standards. Uh, But she's in a private performance of Oscar Wilde's Salome, the famous play-dance event, and she's named in The Cult of the Clitoris, the article we've been discussing, as one of the, quote, known lesbians, unquote, who are too close to Margot Asquith, the wife of the former prime minister, and therefore suspicious, according to Pemberton Billing and his magazine. And she realizes that just by being named and having the fact that she's involved in a private performance being named, this destroys her ability to hold that private performance because it's so controversial now that it's not feasible to hold the performance. So she decides that she's going to charge Pemberton Billing with libel for his allegations and the damage that they've caused to her livelihood. All right, David. So I suspect that this brings us up to the 28th of May, 1918. And Noel Pemberton Billing is now on trial for libel. Take us to the courthouse, David. What are the arguments being put forth here? Neil, this is a wild trial. So Pemberton Billing is defending himself. I should note he was trained as a lawyer before his decision to go into his various business ventures began. So he has some reason to, some skills relevant to this position and some reason to believe he can defend himself in his magazine. David, I don't know much about lawyering, but I do know you probably shouldn't defend yourself. It's still a bold choice to begin with. And then he begins by calling to the stand 
the man who actually wrote the article in question. It actually came out under Pemberton Billings' name, but he admits in court that he actually hired a man named Harold Spencer to do the grunt work of actually, you know, writing things down and being a journalist, quote-unquote journalist, I guess. And Mr. Spencer, of course, just testifies that he gathered information from various sources, and he names people he got the information from who are willing to be named and says, you know, we tried to follow standards and the sort of thing you would say if you wanted to do an ordinary libel defense. Then, of course, Mr. Billings calls, again in his defense, the sources whom Mr. Spencer claims that he had worked with. And that's when the trial takes a turn for the dramatic. The first of those witnesses is Lord Alfred Douglas, whom you may know from his famous period where he was a lover of Oscar Wilde and, in point of fact, was the other man in the famous trial where Oscar Wilde was found guilty of homosexuality and imprisoned for years. Alfred Douglas is the other guy because, of course, to be found guilty of homosexuality, there has to be two men involved or two people involved. So in the intervening years since then, Alfred Douglas had had an incredibly messy breakup with Oscar Wilde, been embittered, and therefore was angry at various people who had been friends with Oscar Wilde, which by the transitive property ended up including Maud Allen when she started performing Oscar Wilde's works and working with Oscar Wilde's friends to stage them. And so he arrived and unloaded a variety of dramatic gossip, mostly relating to his own experiences, but suggesting that there'd been a long-running conspiracy to try and control the British government by, ah, well, by homosexual people that was not really something that is backed up with any evidence, but the fact that he's been found guilty of being a homosexual in the past gives him a weird sort of credibility with the court as an expert on the topic. And once he's off the stand and his dramatic personal issues are off the stand, the next witness that Pemberton Billing calls, a woman by the name of Eileen Villiers Stewart, allegedly, I should note, one of Pemberton Billing's mistresses, shows up to testify, and she claims in court under oath that there is a book that is kept by the Prince of Albania, which at this point was a German ally in the war, listing 47,000 British homosexuals who he is blackmailing to do his bidding, and that she had slept with said Prince of Albania and used that as an opportunity to sneak into his private study and break open the book and read some of the names listed in it, and that Maud Allen was one of those names, thereby supporting Pemberton Billings' claim that he's not committing libel, he is reporting facts that have been gathered, possibly through questionable means, but nonetheless gathered for him. And the judge at this point realizes that things are going off the rails, and this woman is saying things that should be verified but are not being verified because Pemberton Billing, as the lawyer involved, is trying to encourage her to say crazy things rather than maintain proper standards of verification for a court of law. And when the judge attempts to order Miss Stewart off the stand, she dramatically stops, points at the judge, and shouts, 
his name was in the book too, which necessitates the entire trial to be stopped for several hours to clear the courtroom, remove Miss Stewart, and get a new, a whole new witness set up to continue the trial. But they're going to stay with this judge, Dave. They're going to maintain the same judge. I should note it's a jury trial. The judge is running the courtroom as a judge does and will be in charge of sentencing if there is sentencing. But it's a jury that will determine guilt or innocence. But still, it's a dramatic moment and it causes Pemberton Bill to suddenly turn and start suggesting that he had never believed in Mrs. Stewart's claims to begin with and they weren't the basis for his article. But he brings in more witnesses, some of them less dramatic and crazy than the two I've just told you about. And he actually crafts a very competent and workmanlike legal defense, focusing on the claim that he was merely reporting statements and claims made to him by persons he had reasons to trust. And if any of the statements he made in his article were inaccurate or factually untrue, that's regrettable, but it's not liable because he had made every reasonable effort to be accurate and truthful. Meanwhile, the prosecution has a very difficult time because Miss Allen repeatedly refuses to go on the stand, probably because she is most likely a lesbian herself and doesn't actually want to be testifying under oath in a way that might lead her to be cross-examined by Mr. Billings and trapped and forced to commit perjury. And without their alleged victim available to testify, the prosecution is finding things difficult and things take a turn for the worse for the prosecution when Pemberton Billing digs up evidence that Miss Allen had actually changed her name when she moved to England from Canada because her brother had been found guilty in San Francisco of murder. Now that's obviously entirely irrelevant to this case, but Billing deliberately introduces it in front of the jury before the judge can stop him and then apologizes and claims that he's just made a mistake. But obviously this is a tactic to make sure that the jury views Miss Allen as some kind of a criminal and therefore are more favorable to Mr. Billing and his defense. Well, David, we've had a trial full of crazy witnesses, outlandish gossip, and really a bunch of stuff that's not even necessarily relevant to the case. But through all of this, Pemberton Billing has actually managed to build up a defense that he was doing legitimate journalism and reporting what he at least thought was the truth. And it's been difficult on the prosecution to try and prove otherwise. Is there any hope for the prosecution here, David, as the jury sets out to deliberate? Well, the one thing that the prosecution has got is that Pemberton Billings' central claim that he had been doing legitimate journalism by listening to witnesses like Alfred Douglas and Eileen Villiers-Stewart, and he took them as credible reasonably and, you know, with a open mind and had no reason to doubt what they were telling him just isn't that credible a defense because frankly he's called these people to the witness stand and most of them have 
been dramatic and crazy and bringing up wild, irrelevant stuff from their personal pasts rather than evidence and directly related to the case kind of information. Certainly, Pemberton Billing has been doing the best possible with the limited material he has to work with, but ultimately, the prosecution has their own reasons for confidence going into jury deliberations because the evidence just supports them. Yeah, it's hard to mount a credible defense, David, when that is the quality of your witnesses that we've seen throughout this trial. So take us to judgment day, David. The jury returns with a verdict. The jury returns with the verdict. The jury foreman announces not guilty and the crowd in the courtroom goes wild. It's been packed with Pemberton Billing supporters worried, deeply worried that he was about to go to jail and suddenly he is off and he is escorted from the courtroom, surrounded by mobs of cheering crowds because his deepest supporters have come here and packed the whole place. And at this moment, they are just delighted that their champion has gotten off. So it's a big win for the right wing, I would say, fake news media complex here, David, as Noel Pemberton Billing is not guilty of libel. What's the fallout, David? Well, in the short term, Pemberton Billing uses this to get himself reelected, which is great for him in the short term. And he also has his moment continue 1918, the early days of 1918 especially, are now remembered as a triumph for the Allies in World War I, the moment when the last German assault was stopped and the last German military power destroyed. But at the time, the fact that the Germans were able to launch another assault was unexpected and traumatic for civilians back home who had thought that Germany was already beat. And that surprise trauma only pushed Pemberton Billings' political star even higher than it had already been before the trial. But in the longer term, Pemberton Billing was about to get completely destroyed because 1918 ended with a dramatic victory of Allied arms, the famous Hundred Days Offensive, the end of World War I, the Germans surrendered, and suddenly Pemberton Billings' elaborate stories of the German Secret Service taking over Britain sounded completely crazy, because they were. And the threat that he was building up didn't work anymore. It was over. We'd won. Why would we be scared of the Germans in 1919? And with his central threat gone, his political support collapsed. In 1921, he resigned to avoid an election which was going to occur in his riding, which was clearly going to see him lose. And then he moved to Australia for a little bit. He comes back in World War II to try and find the old crazy wartime paranoia glory, but it just doesn't click. He old, forgotten, just another worn out right wing rabble rouser who no one is interested in in Churchill's Brit. Well, David, it's certainly good that people figured out that it was a sham once it sort of came to an end with the end of World War One. Sometimes these things can carry on in unexpected ways. People don't seem to 
believe the truth even when it's put before them. So it's good in a sense that he was put to an end there, David. Obviously, this had a human toll on people like Maud Allen and others who are being called out in his paper and these minority groups that he's attacking in his magazines. Did it have a larger impact, David? Did it have an impact on Britain's war effort? Yes and no. To some extent, Pemberton Billing personally was contained. He was unpopular with the British establishment, and for all his rabble-rousing, he mostly didn't get his personal ideas implemented. But at the same time, the attitude he represents, political current of xenophobia, really, uh, had a big effect on Britain in World War I. Um, he's certainly not the sole cause of things like the British royal family changing their name from Saxe Coburg Gotha to the Windsors, but he certainly represents the forces that helped to push that sort of thing along. And that had a big effect on immigrants living in Britain. Uh, you certainly see a drop in the number of immigrants in the immediate aftermath of World War I as it's just a less hospitable place to be a foreigner than it had been before the war. And all around the world, really, the sort of political currents that he represents in Britain are certainly not absent in France, in Germany, in the United States, even here in Canada. You see things like the town of Kitchener, Ontario, which originally was named Berlin, Ontario, and World War I had to change its name. And that does have a subtle but measurable effect. The rise in xenophobia related to the war will affect the world we live in up until today. Requirements for passports at national borders, for example, were common but not universal before World War I, but universal and frequently stricter than in the past after the war had happened. And certainly, David, we would see the sort of xenophobia and hatred that he represented would come back to haunt the world in the Second World War. But that's a story for another day. Thanks for telling us this story, Dave. Well, I always enjoy getting a chance to share these kind of stories, Neil. And if you liked this episode, go back and check out episode 41, The Cowboys and the Spy. It's another story about World War I, lots of spies, lots of craziness. I think you'll enjoy it as well. You can get it wherever you find our podcast on all your favorite podcast players. And follow us at WhenArtThou on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, to stay in touch. David, we like to end with a quiz. Are you ready to go? I think I'm ready for a quiz, Neil. All right. Today, I have a geography quiz for you, David. But of course, this is a history podcast. So these are going to be some historical facts about cities. You have to guess the city. I have two clues for each city. So you'll get two chances here. I'll give you the first clue. You'll see if you can get it with just one. And then if you need a second, there's a second clue to help you out as well. So let's see how you know your cities. City number one, David. The first Ferris wheel made its debut in this city. Huh. I would suspect somewhere in the U.S. because of the history of carnival attractions in general. And I'm going to guess purely because they held the World's Fair there very famously. I'm going to suggest Chicago. You are right, David. Fact number two about this city was that 1920s gangster Al Capone ruled the streets here. You got it right away. It is Chicago. City number two, David. 
This city hosted the Summer Olympic Games in 1968. The Summer Olympic Games in 1968. I do not know where they were hosted. Just one Summer Olympics, I believe, before Munich in 1972, but that only rules out one city. So perhaps I'll guess Paris. Well, it's not Paris, David. We can eliminate that. I'll give you the second clue for this one. It's the home of the Aztec Templo Mayor. Well, that rules out Europe very efficiently. I was clearly barking entirely up the wrong tree. I'll guess Mexico City. You are correct, David. It was Mexico City. Our next one, David, served as the capital of the USA until 1790. 1790, the capital of the USA. I'm going to have to go with the city with the famous Liberty Bell, Philadelphia. Good guess, David, but you're going to need another clue on this one. Our second clue is that this city was originally to be called New Amsterdam. Ah, a city captured from the Dutch who called it New Amsterdam by James II, but earlier than that, while he was still James, Duke of York, and arrogant enough to name it after himself as New York. You are right, David. It is New York City, the Big Apple. Our next one, David, is home to the world's first metro system. The world's first metro system. I'm going to suspect that once again, we're in Europe. And given the way the Industrial Revolution spread, my instinct would be to guess London. You are correct, David. It was London, England. Our second clue for this one was that it was devastated by a fire in 1666. But you got it with just one clue. Last city for you, David. It's another Summer Olympics host, this time in 1980. I'll guess Vancouver. Well, David, we'll give you another clue since you're not anywhere close there. Uh, it was formerly known as Moskva. Moskva. That sounds like Moscow. So I'll stick with that as my guess. You got it, David. Five for five on our history geography quiz. I've got a few more of those, so we'll save them for another episode. Thanks for playing along. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening.